Nick. Good morning, brothers and sisters. It is wonderful to be with you again. Good morning, everybody at home. And it's always, it's always a joy to be in the house of God. And for everybody, good morning, Pastor Ben. Hey, it's wonderful to see you, brother. Oh, sorry. Hey, all right, all right. Okay, sorry, sorry. It was, uh, it's nice seeing a smiling face. Pastor Ben's always a smooth-looking character, and so I really, do, I really do like your shirt. I'm following your suit, brother, and wearing something very similar this morning. Now, it's quite appropriate that Pastor Ben is here because uh, his skills as a math teacher, I've been told, especially as I've dealt with my children at school, that it's very important to have the foundations set when doing math. It's like you build one upon the other. You can't solve complex problems with math if you don't have the foundational aspects in place. It's just like how you can't really play a game of basketball, no matter how skilled you are, if you don't know the rules. It has been said about this, and this is part of the reason why we've been looking at the book of Galatians, especially these first few chapters, the first three quarters of the book, deal in the theology of who we are and of what we have in Christ. Because if one has the right theology, then one then can have the right living. If one has the right theology, in other words, having the foundational things in place, will enable you to build upon those things. See, these spiritual truths that we've been looking at, the theology that we've been looking at, is a lot of information, yes. But it's, it's more than just information. It is pointing us to a person. It is directing us to Jesus Christ. And the importance of knowing that theology of who one is in Jesus Christ plays a part in how we conduct ourselves as we live for him, to understand that we are crucified with Christ, to be aware of the dangers that we encounter of our own religious mindset, of our own desire to please people rather than pleasing God, and to experience the newness of life that he has given us. Because when I look at the knowledge one has, that knowledge is useless if it does nothing to impact your life. A classic case is the Pharisees. The Pharisees did all the right things. They had all the right knowledge. They practiced all the right religious ritual and yet were condemned by the Lord Jesus for honoring God with their lips but their hearts were far from him. Have a look at Mark chapter 7, verse 6. But see, the best way to combat religious ritual is to understand and apply relational truth. So what we're going to do this morning is look at three relational truths, three relational theologies regarding our position in Christ from Galatians chapter 3. We're going to look at the whole chapter today. And so I would encourage everybody here, everybody at home, to read through this chapter. Actually, not just this chapter. Read through the whole letter so chapter 3 fits in the right context. Because we're looking at, as Galatians, the theme of Galatians has been, living free living free, and we're going to look at the facts, the theology, and how that then impacts our faith, our relationship with Jesus. So bow your heads with me, and let's look at the word together as we open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, 
we come to the altar now where we find forgiveness that has been bought by your precious blood, where we come to you whose arms open wide to embrace us by your spirit, to embrace us with the truth of your word, to embrace us with your love and to minister to our souls even now. We ask that by your grace you will open our eyes to behold you, that you'll open our ears to hear your voice, that you'll soften our hearts to respond to your spirit, and that we will be obedient to the convictions and to the truths you open our eyes to now. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. So, three theological facts, three theological truths and how they impact our faith. The first one is this. From Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 to 14, we look at how it's relational, not religious ritual. Relational, not religious ritual. When you look in the scriptures, you see the constant examples of God desiring to be with his people, desiring to relate to his people whether it be with Adam and Eve in the garden, with God, Genesis 1 to 3. When you look at Enoch, we are told, who didn't see death, for he had this testimony that he pleased God. He walked with him in Hebrews 11. We read about how Abraham interacted and, and involved himself with God in Genesis 18 as he sought to negotiate with Sodom. We read about how Moses spoke with God face to face as a man does his friend in Exodus 33. We read about how these Ten Commandments revealed his nature in Exodus 20. We read about how his law reveals his holiness. His judgment revealed his justice or his fairness. We read how his sacrificial system that he implements reveals his grace and his constant provision revealed his long-suffering and how his involvement revealed his love. It is why Paul spends so much time, like I said, three quarters, the first four chapters of this letter in Galatians is about recorrecting or redirecting their theology. Not so much the study of God, because that's what the word theology means, but rather it's a clearing away of the garbage that has been placed upon the foundation of their faith, the foundation of their faith, which is Jesus Christ. I don't know if any of you guys have walked on a concrete slab. That's the foundation for a house or, or anything like that. But there's always this like, really thin film of sand that can form. And what that does as you walk on it does what? It causes you to slip. It causes you to slip. And so what we do to this foundation that is Jesus Christ, we have these little grains of sand that we add to it for whatever reason, which causes us to what? Slip. It causes us to fall. It affects our footing upon Jesus Christ. And this is the reason why, because the Galatian church added, they started throwing sand on the foundation of Jesus Christ. That's why he seems to take such a harsh tone with these Galatian believers. It's a tone that he uses because they know better. He uses this tone because they've experienced better. That the theological truth upon which their faith was based was upon Jesus and adding to him Adding to him is something they accepted willingly. It is why Paul uses these harsh words in verse 1. You foolish Galatians. That's an amazing word. Foolish. It's just like, 
Like when, you, when somebody calls you a fool, it just sounds like, oh. But he goes, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? That word foolish, I just like saying the word foolish. It's, it's, it just rolls off. But that word foolish, it means, it means unwise, that you're being unwise. And it carries with it this idea or this theme of, of being sensual or being attractive. That's what that word foolish means. You're unwise because something has seemed attractive or something, something has appealed to what you consider to be sensual. It appears, when you think of sensual, what do you think of? You think of your senses, things that appeal to your senses. And he's saying that you're foolish because you've allowed, you're unwise because you've allowed these things to affect, or you've allowed your senses to take precedence rather than the truth of God. But it's the reason why he says after that, you foolish, who has bewitched you? Who has bewitched you? It's to describe what had happened to them. Bewitched means to come under the spell of. Bewitched means to be influenced by or to be enchanted with. And while the Galatians had come under the spell of these infiltrators in the church, if you look at last week in Galatians chapter 2, verse 4, they were bewitched by this false teaching. Why were they bewitched by the false teaching? Because it appealed to our sinful religious mindset. And they were enchanted by false teachers because of our sinful desire to be pleasers of men rather than pleasers of God. Paul saw straight through this. Paul looked straight through the sand because of what they promoted, of course, because of what they sought to do with the gospel. See, Paul realized that what these false teachers and what this false teaching promoted paled in comparison to the beauty and the greatness and the majesty of Jesus Christ, whom, as the verse says, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Basically, he's saying, how can you be bewitched, be, be bewitched and drawn away from someone who is clearly portrayed as crucified for you, who died for you? Now, this causes me to stop and give pause, to stop and take stock. What has bewitched you? What has bewitched me? And caused us to place other things as more important than Jesus. What has become so important that I prioritize everything else over Jesus? What is considered so great a value that it is more important than knowing him who loved me and gave himself for me? What has bewitched me? What has caught my attention that I'm attracted to, that I consider of greater worth than he who sacrificed his divinity to be born a man, who sacrificed, for want of a better word, his dignity to be mocked and scoffed and humiliated by the people, by the very people he made? What could be more important than him who sacrificed his life on the cross because of my sin and because of my offense against him, who bore the weight of God's judgment, of God's wrath because of that sin, because of my sin and your sin, sin that was not his own, 
And we read what this looked like. We read about these acts, what these acts look like in verses 10 through to 14, because it contrasts, it contrasts our human reliance and what we value, what we consider more important with the divine intervention that God had done through Jesus Christ for us. If you've got your Bibles, look at chapter 3, verse 10. I'll read it for you. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Sorry. Verse 11, clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, It says the person who does these things will live by them. That's our human effort. In verse 13, we read this though. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Was it 2 Corinthians 5.21? He who knew no sin became sin for us. So he redeemed us. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. This is why the Galatians were referred to as foolish. This is why we, I, can be considered foolish if I am bewitched by something other than Jesus Christ. That takes me away from him because these Galatians and what we do sometimes is try to attempt to live a life pleasing to God absent from the very thing that pleases him I want to say that again we try to live lives that are pleasing to God absent from the very thing that pleases him what are we told in scripture pleases God according to Hebrews eleven six, faith faith The works of the law do not involve faith. The works of the law are check mark, check mark, check mark, check mark. Keep my 12-step program for righteousness, which is not what God desired. What he desired was faith, relationship over religious ritual. Faith that pleases God. Faith is what he desires. Faith is what he amazed at when Jesus witnessed it in person. If you have a look at Matthew chapter 8, verse 10, faith is what caused him to stop in a crowd of people being bustled around when he was touched by the woman with the issue of blood. And he actually asks, who touched me in Mark 5, 31? There was that touch of faith that caused him to stop and take notice. You read, you read, that is faith that causes Jesus to marvel, to be amazed and astonished. And you read all about this aspect of faith in the first part of the chapter. You'll notice these rhetorical questions that Paul asks these Galatian churches. What's the purpose of the rhetorical question? It's not so the asker learns anything, because the asker already knows the answer. He asks rhetorical questions for the listener to stop and meditate on what they have just heard. And you read this from from verse 2 to verse 5. He asks these four questions. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Or in other words, faith. Faith. 
Did you receive it? Did the Spirit seal you and, and sanctify you and, and separate you by performing a checklist or through faith in the good news of Jesus Christ? What's the answer? It was through faith. Pointing one to a relationship. Next question in verse 3. After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Or, once again, after being born again, how? By faith, have his Spirit dwelt in you, according to 1 Corinthians 6, and does life as the true vine flowing through you in John 15, can my growth continue to be perfected by me trying harder? Or by me willing it to happen? No. It comes from what? Faith in him and the relationship I share with him. In verse 4, he asks this question. Have you experienced so much in vain? If it really was in vain, have you gone through so much suffering in your activity to please men? Have you gone through so much suffering by holding human standards, suffering persecution for holding to a standard that appears godly, but is really just your own human effort? Have you really suffered that for a pointless, meaningless reason? Or, or do you suffer because you are in the will of God? Do you suffer persecution because you're holding to his righteousness by faith? And in verse 5, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law? Or by believing what you heard? Do I experience the resurrection power of God in Christ, the miraculous taking place by doing things or by trusting his promises, by obeying his word, by relying on his spirit? You see the focus that Paul's trying to get across here? Not, no, look, I'm not saying don't do stuff. Please don't misunderstand me. Paul just wants him to understand it's the relationship that takes priority. It's the relationship that is to be valued. Because as Paul begins this spiritual cleaning house, as he looks to sweep off the sand from the foundation that is Jesus, he refers to their belief or their believing three times in, in verse 2, 5, and 6. And then he refers to their faith in verses 7, 8, 9, 11, 12, and 14. Why? Because faith is the outward action that stems from what you believe. It is what you do because you know or because of who you know. For it is faith that makes one Abraham's child in verse 7. It is faith that justifies in verse 8. It is faith that brings blessing in verse 9. It is faith the by which and by how we live in verse 12. And it is faith that liberates from the law. Sorry, that's verse 12. And verse 14 is by faith we receive the promises of God. For all the promises of God are what? Yes and amen in Christ. Faith is vital in a relationship, in any relationship. Faith actually gives value to religious ritual. Faith gives meaning to, meaning to the, the, the ritual that is performed. When I said I do to my wife, and my wife said I do to me, when we made our vows together, those vows were taken by what? Faith. And then that faith, like, 
I believed my wife loved me, and she believed that I love her. We revealed that commitment to each other on October 30th, 1993. Now, 27 years later, 27 years later, the act of that belief, the faith of that love is expressed in how I treat her and how she treats me. My, I guess you'd say, religious ritual in my marriage ceremony, that was given value due to the relationship that I shared with her by faith. Make sense? That is why, that is why we see, and it's so important, that it's relationship that actually preceded the rules. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through to 22. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? That's not a big philosophical dilemma for us as people who believe in God. But which came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, the chicken, obviously, because God made it so. Okay, it's just like how we know that Adam and Eve didn't have any belly buttons. You know, it's just think on that for a second. All right, if you have to find out, ask me about it later. But okay, for all the talk and emphasis that we place on the six hundred odd commands that are given to the people of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai, in order to sustain, sorry, establish and sustain a theocratic kingdom. On earth through Israel, we must never lose sight of this fact. Long before God itemized what he requires, long before God gave the 10 words on the tablets of stone, long before God established specifically what festivals, what sacrifices, what offerings were to be made, we read in the Old Testament how he desired to have an intimate involved relationship with himself, with his creation. If you look back, dating back to when God provided Adam and Eve an atonement or a covering for their sin in Genesis chapter four, uh, 3 and 4, and, and, and clothed them with the animal skin, all the way up to Abraham's calling and having that covenant established with him in Genesis 12, we read here in Galatians chapter 3 how it was a relationship that preceded the rules, a relationship that preceded the 10 words or the 10 commands. In verses 17 to 19, we read this. Have a look in your Bibles. The law introduced 430 years later. That's how it was between Abraham and Moses. All that time, 430 years, there was no official Ten Commands. There was the Word of God. There was the relationship with God. There was the involvement of God with His people. 430 years. It does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. The commands don't do away with the relationship that God initiated. It doesn't do away with the covenant that he established. It still takes precedence. Verse 18, for the inheritance depends on the law. Sorry, for if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? Here's why. It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. First things first. 
The law of God given to Moses was for the purpose of, yes, establishing a law by which Israel would live, function, and exist. There were religious laws, there were civil laws, there were even family laws, but the whole law showed several very important things. One, the holiness of God. The holiness of God, the complexity of the various festivals and sacrifices, the frequency of those sacrifices, the types of sacrifices, the specific offerings, the various washings, etc., etc., etc. It showed and revealed that a holy God is not easily approached by sinful man. You read Leviticus, you read through Leviticus, and you see the word is just used 56 times in that book alone. Holy, holy, that he is a holy God. It basically means this, you cannot approach God on your terms. You do not get to call the shots. You approach God on his terms, and it shows that he is not one to be trifled with. We're going to be looking at this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and 8. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. We'll look at that later on. But that's what the reality is. It reveals the holiness of God. And it's not my definition of holy. It's how he reveals himself within scripture. That's what it reveals. Two, it shows the futility of human effort. The laws of God reveal how much we need God to save us. It reveals how much we lack in terms of what God requires. We forget. We justify our forgetting. We dismiss. We lay things aside, especially when it comes to things of God, if it doesn't accommodate what I want to do or how I feel. And you see this evident in Exodus chapter 19, verse 8, I believe. This is when Israel basically says to Moses, whatever God wants us to do, we will do. We'll do it. So God goes back up the mount, and while he's up there in Exodus 33, what happens? They start worshiping a golden calf. Straight away, they find something else to replace God. That's the futility of human effort. We have good intentions, but what's, uh, what's that old line, that old adage, that the road to hell is paved with good intentions? Why? Because it's not about the rules. The rules reveal God and all his glory and all his holiness. The rules reveal us and all our sinfulness and all our need. And, and remember doing this, the Ray Comfort thing? You want to know how you measure up against the 10 words? If you've ever told a lie, you've broken one of his commands. If you've ever lusted after anybody, you've broken one of his commands. If you've ever hated on somebody without cause, you've broken one of his commands. It shows our need for God. And on top of that, to think relationally, we still fall far short. The third thing we are told is the price of sin, the cost of that separation and the extent of what's required to atone for the offenses, our offenses against God. You look at Leviticus chapter 4, verse 1, to chapter 6, verse 7, and that is all just on sin offerings. What God requires for an atonement for our sin. You see, these three things, these three are realities, God's holiness, our futility, and the cost of sin. See, these all existed before the giving of this law. But the law also did this. It reflected 
his desire for relationship with you. It revealed, yes, the complexities of what it takes to know God, but the fact is that he put it in place. He says, yes, this is what's required to meet with me, and I desire to meet with you. And even though we fell short, he still, by his grace, provided a means where that relationship could be established. We read about how the uh, acceptance by God could be had. And Abraham is a classic example of this. Forgiveness from God could be received. Abraham's life exemplifies this. Grace, mercy, and provision through God could take place. Abraham, Abraham and all that he does in his conduct manifest this. And all of this was happening 430 years before Moses received the 10 words on the tablets of stone. And it reveals this important fact that while one preceded the other, both exercise faith and both focus on relationship. Both the law, which looks at the personal God that can be known, and the relationship as reflected through Abraham, they both reflect the same thing. God's desire for us to relate with him. Which is the reason why this third, and I think one of the greatest points, how the rules reveal relationship. The rules reveal relationship. Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 to 29. I'm going to read 23 and 24. It says this. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. Verse 23. So that the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. I've always loved the authorized version of verse 24 because the beauty of the truths that are communicated are so impactful. Verse 24 says this, wherefore, or because we were held in custody, because we were locked up under the law, we read how the law was our schoolmaster. In some translations, they use the word tutor. In this translation, we read guardian. But I like schoolmaster because it refers to being taught. It refers to being led. There is a duty of care that is undertaken by the schoolmaster as the educational provider. And for us being uh, schooled, as it were, the purpose of a schoolmaster is to what? Is to bring us unto Christ. The schoolmaster, which is the law, reveals our need for a savior. Reveals our need for Jesus. Reveals our need to be redeemed by someone else. The law brings us to Christ. To Christ and him alone. You look all throughout the scriptures and you see Picture after picture after picture after picture after picture of Jesus Christ and his saving power, of his deliverance, of his rescue of us, of humanity. That's what the law is. That's what the rules do. The rules bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. That we might be justified. That our declaration of innocence 
that the clearing of our debt, not, not that we are worthy of such a declaration because I'm as guilty as sin. Not that I am worthy of my debt or have to have my, not that I have the resources to clear my debt because I lack those resources to pay it, but because Jesus has on my behalf paid that debt and cleared my name. That is why at the close of the letter, Paul expresses this in verses 28 and 29. He says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, there is neither slave nor freed, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are heirs of, sorry, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, these verses are not eliminating class or gender or anything like that from the world. This is merely making a, statement, making a fact, stating the fact that before God, without knowing Christ, we all suffer the same judgment and condemnation for our sin. But it also means this, that in Christ, we all reap the same blessing and the same privilege. We receive forgiveness of sin. We, ex- we receive acceptance by God. We are renewed in nature. That is what takes place as such a relationship has been established through Jesus Christ. That's a lot of information. And what do three, these three theological truths do for us? How does knowing the right theology, like that it's relational, not ritual, that relationship before rules, and that it's rules that reveal relationship, how does that result in my right living? Three changes, very quickly. One, there is a change of value. A change of value. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. We'll get to that. See, the, the value of the relationship we share with the Lord is one to be cherished because he cherishes it with you. The value he has placed on you is the one that cost him his blood that flowed and the life that he gave. To replace the relationship that he established with us by going through the motions and holding to a set of rules to, to mouthing prayers, to attending activities, belittles what he went through to make you his child. It belittles it. You dismiss it. But there's a change of value that you start to value. You start to value coming to church on a Sunday. You value that, not because there's people here, but because as a body of Christ, we can worship together our God. That you value your cell groups, not because it's a get-together, but because it's an opportunity where you can pray for one another, invest into each other, support each other outside of a Sunday morning service, and bless one another in life. That you value a monthly prayer meeting, where we can appeal unto the creator of the universe on behalf of those who don't know Jesus, on behalf of those who are sick, on behalf of those who are spiritually unwell, on behalf of those that you value those things. See, if we have the right theology that it is relational and not religious ritual, then we value the things God has given us to a greater extent. What else do we value? No, no, what else has changed? That we have this, oh, sorry, I'll read the verses for you first, sorry. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 says this, 
For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious. Do you believe this stone is precious? The cornerstone of your faith who is Jesus Christ. Do you value him? Or are there other things that have bewitched you and you've placed your value in other things? So not only is there a change of value, there's a change of priorities. Isaiah chapter 12, verses, sorry, Isaiah chapter 1, verses 12 to 14a. I'll read this first so I don't forget. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. This is the God's, the Lord's view of religious ritual, of religious activity. And the, when, when we understand that, that it's relationship over rules, who do we prioritize? We prioritize a person, not a program. We prioritize a relationship, not a ritual. When we view and see how God views, think about this, how many times we offered up these religious activities and have God look at them and say, they're detestable to me because you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. And when you see this and realize that it's the relationship that he desires to see from you over those rules, then what happens? We follow David's example in Psalm 51 where there is, there is confession of sin. There is repentance from sin. There is contrition of heart. There is humility of soul. There is submission to his will. Why? Because there's a change of priorities now. Because you now place the one you value in his rightful position. Remember that quote from L.A. Redpath? He is to have the same position in our hearts that he holds in the universe. He must hold the same position in our hearts that he holds in the universe. And you know this. You know when there's someone that's important to you, you prioritize them. You prioritize them. When you're dating and people are like, hey, man, we're going to go out. All the boys are all together. And you're like, nah, man, I want to go hang out with my girl. And you'll, you'll brush off all the guys so you can be with that one special someone. So you know how to prioritize somebody. Because you value them. And it's reflected in what you do. And when you understand that it's relationship over rules, then you, then you, then you prioritize him who loved you and gave himself for you. Oh, that's a lovely, a lovely, it was a lovely tap on Cass's shoulder from Brad. They're engaged to be married if you don't know. Oh, that's sickening. Okay, all right, so here we go. Nice. All right, so not only is there a change of priority, so there's a change of value, there's a change of priority, there is a change of focus. First Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 to 14 says this. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, 
but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. What a gracious God he is. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The Spirit, oh sorry, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. There is this change of focus now because we have been given by the Spirit of God understanding of spiritual realities that were, were there before. And because we now understand those things, our focus has changed from me to him, from my goals to his goals, from my kingdom to his kingdom, from my desires to his desires. That's what happens when you understand, because, once again, it is revealing a person. The rules reveal a person. Once the rules reveal a person, there is a change of focus. That when you come to your quiet times in the morning, it's not quoting words wrote or verbatim. When you come to the scriptures, you're encountering who? A person. That when you pray, you're not mouthing You're not mouthing just phrases to sound good, but you're talking with who? A person. That when you reach out by the Spirit of God to help someone inside the church and outside of the church, you're not revealing you, you're revealing who? A person. Like what Watchman Nee said, when you look at the Word of God, when you hear a message taught, you're not imparting information, you're communicating life. You're communicating a person. There's a change of focus, and that focus can only be changed by his spirit, by his spirit working in you and his spirit working in me. You see, all of these changes happen inwardly because we have been changed inwardly. And so I pray that this change of focus, meaning that our perspective is that of the spirits, that our change of priority which is to uphold Jesus as precious and our change of value is that we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that that will take place in the relationship or the theology of the relationship that we have looked at today. And that it becomes more than just words, but rather life that transforms us from the inside out. I want to close, I'm just going to close this one quote. I'm going to say this one quote, and then I'll close in prayer. But I really like, this is from a guy named Dr. Stephen Lawson, and he said this, which I think is appropriate for Galatians. If Jesus has not changed your life, the Jesus you met was another Jesus. If Jesus has not changed your life, if there is not a change of value, if there is not a change of priority, if there is not a change of focus, if there is not a, a valuing of the relationship over the rules, if there's not a, 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 re, a value of a relationship over religious ritual, if there's not a, a, a rule that points you to who Jesus Christ is, then you, the question must be asked, is it another Jesus? Is it another gospel? Is it another savior that I've placed my trust in? Now, my final note, I said final note already, eh? sorry. Final note, that was this. I'm not exempting the fact that we must be living holy. I'm not exempting about attending to church because the scriptures teach that. I'm not, I'm not exempting any other things, neither am I belittling those things.
But if you truly know Jesus, you will seek to be obedient to all of his word, not just the ones that make you feel good. Okay? So with that, I'm going to... I, okay, I didn't ask Pam and I didn't ask Ellie for this, but can we please just one more time sing Come to the Altar and then I will close in prayer after that. They've got to get their mics on. They've got to do all the stuff. I'm going to explain everything. So while they're doing that, and, and I had Pam just, what, oh, Joe? I know, I know. But as the Spirit moves, as the Spirit moves, and the Lord really, because I think, I, I, I think, I think the Lord, this song is actually very appropriate for us after what we just heard, that we can come to the altar, the Father's arms are open wide, that we can find forgiveness if we have fallen to sin, if we have become apathetic to the things of God, if we have become self-centered, if we have got a limited vision of who God is, that we can repent at the altar of Jesus Christ, that we can find forgiveness, that we can receive renewal, that we can experience restoration, and that in our relationship with him, move on from where we are, the state of apathy to the abundance that he has promised us in Jesus Christ. So with that, I'll hand it over to my sisters, Pamela and Alison. <laughs> Pamela sounds funny, eh? Sorry, Pam. <laughs> Let's stand and worship together, church.
thank you that you are a God who calls us, that you invite us to yourself, that you say, come, let us reason together, that you invite us to yourself to lay all our burdens upon you and to take your burden upon us. Father, we ask now as we come to the altar that we will have hearts and spirits full of repentance, hearts and spirits full of confession, of humility, of contrition, of submission to your will. May you, Lord, reveal to us the greatness of your person and the precious relationship that you've given us in Jesus Christ. I pray that we as your people will have a change of focus, that we will have a change of priorities, and we will have a change of value prioritizing your kingdom, your heart, and your will above our own. May we truly decrease so that you might increase for your glory. So we ask you to dismiss us now. Have your way with us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said.